Hey, it's Teresa. This fall on Disruptors, we explored some of the big topics on climate change and spoke with some of the big players taking climate action. We called the series The Climate Conversations, and it's fair to say the conversations are ongoing. As part of that, we're bringing you special extended cuts of some of our most popular ones. Arguably, no sector has more work to do in meeting our ambitious climate targets than the oil and gas sector. It's the biggest producer of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada, but also the sector where we're starting to see a ton of innovation and an emerging, more inclusive model for doing business. One of those who's helping build that new model is JP Gladue. JP is a board member of Suncor Energy, which has committed itself to becoming a net zero emitter by 2050. He's also a principal at Mokote Consultancy and a former CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. As he explained when we talked earlier this fall, sustainable development is supremely important to First Nations in Canada and essential to the future of energy companies such as Suncor if they hope to reach net zero. JP, welcome to Disruptors. Teresa, it's really nice to be here. Thank you. From 2012 to late last year, you served as president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, whose mission is to promote, strengthen and enhance a prosperous Indigenous economy. When you look back, how did the CCAB address sustainable prosperity during your leadership? Wow, that's um, you're hitting on some wonderful memories, Teresa. It was transformative. Not, I like to think, and, and a great team that uh, exists that that I was able to build, and it continues on under the leadership of Tabitha Bull, my successor. Uh, incredible time. The organization, uh, and I think what I feel most proud about is the growth of its programs and its presence in research. You and I both know if you don't have great data, it's hard to change policy. It's hard to change thinking. And we, or actually, I say I say we again, but the CCAB is 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 a is a leader, a world leader in developing research and and research by Indigenous people for Indigenous people to influence outcomes. Uh, the PAR program, the Progressive Aboriginal Relations, is a program that is set to, uh, and it's been in existence for a while now that supports non-Indigenous corporations for the most part in in long-term sustainable relationships across sectors to work with Indigenous entrepreneurs and communities and for them to get better at understanding the Indigenous sphere and how to empower that economy through business relationships. The action that I was most proud of, the one where I felt I could have retired and, and felt that, you know, I did my part in society and then sail off into the sunset was the procurement work, the strategy work. A great team. I, I hired this young man from Australia, an Aboriginal guy named Josh Riley, who worked for us for a couple of years. And he said, JP, you know what we did? We, you know, Canada is really great as a world leader in an Indigenous economy in many, many regards, but is not doing as great when it comes to government procurement. And what we did in Australia is we, we matched up, you know, the Indigenous leadership with a prominent corporate leader to challenge the governments and other corporations to do better on their procurement strategies because the government particularly in many parts of Canada were not doing their part in procuring Indigenous entrepreneurs and businesses. So they, they've they done a great job. So I said, well, let me call up Mark Little, who was the COO at the time of Suncor. And uh, his team said, yes, Mark is going to stand at the front of the room with you, JP, and challenge corporations and the government uh, to do to set targets around Indigenous procurement. Because 
Tristan, you and I know you can do all the great things in the world, but if you can't bring in cash, cash is, you know, my MBA training is good. Cash is king. You need economy. You need uh, economic parity to be a partner, to have a voice. So Mark and I, we went to the, to the government, we went to parliament, we hit up all of the ministers and in the right places, and we got a commitment from them to set a 5% target. And Tabitha Bull, the new uh, CEO, I guess she's not so new anymore, she's been there since March of uh, 2020, dropped me a text not too long ago saying we did it. We got it over, it's legislated. Procurement is making huge, that's going to translate to billions of dollars because what it is, it's a handshake it's an opportunity to build business together. And most importantly, I think the relationships would have struggled for over 150 years. That's incredible. And in those conversations about procurement, economic parity, were there uh, any opportunities to incorporate sustainability, environmental issues in those conversations? Absolutely, there were. CCAB was an org- is an organization that is very inclusive. Uh, we all know that the energy sector is is transforming. Uh, you know, I used to sit on the uh, Ontario Power Generation Board, and you know, we had hydro projects. Uh, nuclear is clean energy, uh, and we had sustainable equity partnerships with or OPTC. There, I go with the wheat thing. I still feel like I'm so part of the conversation every day. You know the lingo. <laughs> <laughs> with 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 communities uh, that are helping transform the way that we do, do generate our energy sector. Um, I want to talk a little bit, if it's all right, Teresa. One of the, my roles uh, since then, I'm the chair of the Boreal Leadership Champions, and that is a group of companies and indigenous leaders from oil, gas, mining, forestry, energy. I think I mentioned finance, uh, and it's you know my my good friend Valerie Courtois and Kathy Wilkinson and Meredith and Mark. We're all trying to find a place and we're developing some thought leadership with all these companies around responsible development, around Indigenous protected conservation areas, because we need those natural services to be able to live a, a, a stronger future, one where we can be proud of to hand down, an environment to hand down to our kids. So we're doing some thinking around innovative financing and what economic reconciliation looks like and to bring those ideas to the forefront. There's a lot of organizations and communities that are putting a lot of time into finding this balance and be happy to have more conversations about this with you. Yeah, I'd love to follow up on that, actually. Can you describe that connection between Indigenous-led conservation and economic reconciliation and how that might also apply to energy production? Yeah, that's another great question. For a long time, we've been shut out of the Canadian economy. We had, you know, the fur trade, which sustained our communities. Uh, And then we were told, our communities were told that harvesting furs was not appropriate anymore. So we're, okay, well, we don't want to live in poverty. We don't want government handouts. So what's next? Well, we'll look to the mining. Like a lot of our communities are in the north. So we'll look to the extraction sectors to generate revenue, to generate income, to generate an economy. When we talk about economic reconciliation, it means that we're generating wealth and we're managing that wealth and we're empowering our communities. We know that we can actually find a better balance between extraction and indigenous protected conservation areas and sustainable development and more trees because our natural service ecosystems provide billions, trillions of dollars that we don't even think about when it comes to clean air, clean water. You know, think about all the health impacts that occur if you don't have a clean environment. But we also, as an indigenous community, are are having these tough conversations around, well, we're going to transition. It's going to take time. 
there's still so much poverty, not only in Canada, but around the world. 700 million people in adjunct poverty because they don't have access to energy. So oil and gas is going to be a part of our economy for years to come. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be putting time and effort and resources and research into actually improving that technology. So there's a balance to be struck. And that balance is going to be, we're not going to find that balance without the Indigenous voice. We need to be at the table every step of the way from any kind of development to any kind of protected area and developing economies around those protected areas. On more practical level, to what extent might there be concern amongst Indigenous communities, especially those who partner with big oil and gas, big energy producers, about developing these resources, which knowing that oil demand will not wane for a while, eventually it will wane to some degree. So knowing that that long-term demand will wane along with perhaps the value of these properties, what concerns are there around that? Well, I think the biggest concerns are, again, that question about balance, balance of generating economies so we're not poor all the time in government handouts, but also making sure that we've got areas that we can rely on for our traditional activities in the clean water and the clean air. I mean, I just had my daughter visiting me up in my reserve the last five days and we were moose hunting and I'm on a lake. Let me let me paint this picture for you. And then I'm going to also use an example in Alberta with um, Fort Mackay First Nation. I live on Lake Nipigon. Our whole lake is protected and it's the biggest lake in Ontario, surrounded by the Ontario borders. It's beautiful. I hunt on it. I fish. I caught a beautiful speckled trout with my fly rod this weekend. I released her because she was a female and she was spawning. But, you know, we're the guardians of the land and put us in that place so that we can continue to protect her. But we also have a lithium mine site just not that goes road access through our reserve. We have two hydro developments that we're partners in. We have a sawmill. We have old railway bed that goes through our community. And we have the natural gas line that cuts across our community as well that my grandfather, one of my grandfathers helped build. We've got all the resource activities there. And so we're trying to find that balance to make sure that the land that needs to be protected is protected and that we are the ones that are also becoming the equity partners and the decision makers in the way that resource projects get developed and that we also benefit from it. Now, if we look at um, maybe more pointed to your question about some concerns, Fort Mackay First Nation is the prime example. You know, Chief Jim Boucher, uh, chief of 30 plus years. Uh, he's not the chief right now, but I, I will always call him chief. He's just an extraordinary leader. He talked about, you know, he was providing furs, trapping furs for his community. His community was doing that to subsistence living. And then over time that went away and then they fought their oil and gas companies. And then they found their way to the table, the oil and gas companies, and they became this equity stakeholder in one of the biggest resource tank projects in, in history with Suncor, along with Mikasu group of companies. But they also have Moose Lake. And I've been to Moose Lake a couple times with my friends, Dave and Nicole. And it is beautiful. I've been up a couple, it's stunning. And they drew a line. They said, no, no more encroachment of this lake. This is important to our community. No more development here. We will work with you in these areas that are appropriate. This area, hands off. And they won that, right? They led that conversation. So they got concerns, but they also have to provide for their for the young people. We had chatted with Mark Little from Suncor, as you know, of course, about Suncor's work and partnership with Indigenous communities. And I think he had specifically cited the example of, of Chief Boucher and the joint venture that they had established with the First Nations there about 
basically providing stable prices to ensure that the volatility of oil doesn't impact them. Do you see that as a, a model that can be scaled and replicated going into the future? And uh, what other models might exist that would ensure over time that economic parity and reconciliation? That's a great question. Now, I'm not surprised Mark talked about that. Um, you know, the, the relationship that and Mark and, and Jim have, it was that of marriage. They would have their battles, but they'd always come back to the table and what's best for our community, what's best for the company and the, and the economy, and how are we going to balance this all out? And they got through it. And, and I think it's an incredible model um, where the communities were able to hedge against the markets and have uh, lower cost capital and have steady revenue to support their community while having an eye on, on the development itself. I think it's a wonderful model. The cutting edge opportunities in this country exist in a few areas. One is that our communities want to be equity stakeholders in a lot of the resource projects. Look at TMX. There are a number of Indigenous groups that want to purchase that line. So we need to, as a country, find equity pools to develop, generate them so that communities can access capital at a reasonable rate. And then province to have the ability to backstop the payments so that adds economic certainty of a project. The other thing, and I know it's still early days, but the province of Alberta, they're talking about an energy corridor with Treaty 8 where the First Nations are going to be, and the Métis groups are going to be the ones talking about what's appropriate, where that line goes, what's appropriate for development. I sit on the board of Noront Resources and the Ring of Fire in Northern Ontario, and it's the communities that are driving the environmental assessment process uh, for road infrastructure. Which brings me to the last point is our communities are absolutely tired of coming to the table last. Why does a regulatory process and, and the precedent for the most part is that companies go and engineer the hell out of a project get the engineers to come to the table, wipe their hands and go, okay, let's talk to the indigenous communities now and see what they think. I'll tell you what those communities think. They think, what the heck were you thinking coming us to us at the very end? Why don't you come to us at the beginning when we know this landscape the best and now with all of a legal precedence, we're going to say no. No way are you going to develop your project because you don't respect us. And so it's that mutual respect and reciprocity we always have to go into the boardrooms and communities with to develop projects in a holistic way that is respectful of Indigenous sovereignty and as well as the economic model. Have, have you seen that consultative process improving? Yes. Yes, I have. A, a group that I am I'm so lucky to advise, um, Chief Charlene Gales, the chair. She's from Fort, she's the chief of Fort Nelson First Nation. Uh, Neil Edwards is the uh, CEO, the, or the executive director of the of the First Nations Major Project Coalition. And the government is supporting this group. It's got so much great work. There are two streams when you engage this group as a, as an Indigenous community or as a proponent coming in. They will walk you through. The environmental, because if you can't do the environmental questioning and process to make sure communities aren't going to be severely or negatively impacted, you're not even going to get to the business modeling. Once you pass the sniff test on the on the environmental piece and you've got, and this is the thing that I, I just don't understand about uh, some projects where they come to our communities last, if you can't get the Indigenous buy-in, your project's done. Mm. Do the hard work, get the buy, and the economic modeling is going to get better. So then you go into the economic modeling. And what the markets are saying in ESG and investment and um, 
you know, investors, they're, they're not dumb. They're all asking, what's the indigenous relationship like? If you don't have that nailed down in a progressive way, we're probably not going to be interested. And if we do, the cost of that capital is going to be extraordinary because of the uncertainty that ensues. So the FNMPC is this great organization that helps communities and corporations find that balance uh, on the modeling, the capacity, the and the environmental. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful organization. Coming up after the break, more of my conversation with JP Gladue. So stay right there. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm John Stackhouse. Earlier this fall, RBC Economics and Thought Leadership released a report called The $2 Trillion Transition, Canada's Road to Net Zero. It explores the costs and benefits of Canada's shift to a carbon-neutral economy and how it can fuel a new generation of Canadian innovation. From carbon capture technology to sustainable agriculture to the full potential of supercharging electric vehicles, we look at all the ways for Canada to take a leading role in the fight for climate action and the economic opportunities those create. To learn more, check out the link to the show notes of this episode and visit rbc.com slash netzero. And be sure to listen to and follow Disruptors wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In the second half of my conversation with JP Gladue, we talk about the role of renewables in Canada's energy mix, as well as the concept of a just transition. And importantly, we discuss the vital role Indigenous communities play in building that new energy paradigm. If I can pivot just slightly, so I know you wear a lot of hats, and among the many hats that you wear, you sit on the Suncor board, as you mentioned. Suncor is transforming itself into a more sustainable energy producer and is targeting 2050 as the year they become net zero. What do you think about that target, and what are the biggest challenges still to overcome on that journey? Yeah, it's a lofty goal. I mean, but the thing is that not only Suncor, we've got Imperial, CNRL, MEG, Synovus, 90% of the oil sands producers are all committed to this. So you have more partners committing to technology, more partners committing to reducing GHGs, um, getting better at uh, water use, uh, getting better at Indigenous consultation, engagement, empowerment, uh, strength in numbers. So I, I think because of that commitment with all these companies, it is achievable. It really is. When we think about the way that our investment, like I was talking about ESG and global investments, they're going to look at that and they're going to go, okay, that we can, okay, they've, they've got a goal. Um, I, it's going to be challenging, but it is possible. Um, Suncor is an incredible organization and they've had a great track record on a number of fronts. And just think about this from a global perspective. You know, when we think about the major oil and gas producers in the world, there's only two out of the top six, there's only two that you can invest in because the rest are state owned. And the one country that I'm referring to does it the best in the world when it comes to gender, when it comes to indigenous, when it comes to regulatory, when it comes to water, when it comes to everything else, we got to reduce our GHGs. And so when we do that, it's competitive world and the oil and gas companies understand this. And when they reduce that, nobody's going to touch 
Canadian oil and gas. And so we've got it. We, we've got it. We've got to hit that. That's that's the path forward. We have to. And, and there's still an open question on energy production at its most basic, whether it's better to find ways to reduce the carbon emissions in traditional extraction or to shift focus to develop more renewable energy sources. And of course, it's not just an or question. It's, it's and. It's and. So what would you say is the best path forward, the right mix to meet our future energy needs? Yeah, I think you said it's the mix. Um, I don't know if anybody has a crystal ball on this because there's so much uncertainty. We're investing in hydrogen. We're investing in carbon capture. We're in, we we have to spend more time investing in our natural capital of trees. I, I think it's one of the best carbon eating machines that I know as a forester. <laughs> so so you know companies like Suncor are investing the time and resources in those types of technologies. But we cannot rely just on one. It's like a balanced portfolio. When I look at my RSPs or my investment accounts, I'm distributed across. I've got some risky uh, investments and, you know, some of these investments that we're exploring the technology, there's risk, but the payoff could be amazing, will be amazing if we can get some of them done. Uh, the natural capital is would probably be my easiest one. I mean, I know what the return on the capital of a tree would be. We got to plant more of those, but we also have to get better at our processes, with the reduction of uh, of the water, the reduction of of energy required to extract oil out of the sands, we have to get better at that. We have to to get lower emissions out of those processes as well. So we've got to look at these things, evaluate them, improve upon them. The stuff that's not working, let's fail quickly, get that out of the way. Let's get the next one on the on the road. And you know we've got to you know we've 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 got to play a number of fronts. We just can't rely on one 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 path because if we fall off a cliff in that one path and we haven't spent any time on the other path, we're doomed. You uh, you often talk about a just transition. Can you elaborate more on what you mean by that? Absolutely. I went to the I went to fill up this morning. You know I live in the north. I'm a hunter, and I'm two hours from Thunder Bay, so I have a truck. And it's always interesting when we think about environmentalism. It's always easier to be an environmentalist when you ask everybody else to do the hard work. It really is. It, it, it's it's baffling sometimes. You know, DiCaprio comes up to the oil sands and you know chastises the oil sands for for oil and gas development when he flies around the world. He's got a billion whatever boats and helicopters and I was like come on like let's be real here but so the just chance so I'll get off my soapbox <laughs> <laughs> but the just transition is yes yes I mean I sit on an oil and gas company I also chair the boilership champions around conservation I took my daughter hunting in a clean environment we need both and a just transition is the fact that we've got two sides here and we're trying to build a bridge and in, in, in to meet that bridge to make sure that we can travel in, in a clean environment and a sustainable economy. The, the renewables, the batteries, the infrastructure for, in, for battery cars, the wind, the solar, we just don't have the capacity to meet world demand for energy. There are way too many people that suffer significant, like deathly poverty because they don't have access to energy. Now, how is that? How is that? right in the world. So oil and gas is going to be here for quite a while yet. And that, that demand, you can see in our price of our gas, you can see in Biden going over, the OPEC companies, countries, sorry, getting more oil. We've got oil up here, but it's not going to happen overnight. Mm. 
and and we've got to make sure that we're we hold corporations accountable to their targets. We need to make sure that um, we have a little bit more balance in the way that we. I'm, I'm a proud Indigenous Canadian, in the way that we develop our resource sector. It's not perfect. It's getting better. We see the goalposts, and we're trying to navigate between those posts. And we've got Indigenous inclusion that is. It's got to get better, but it's definitely 100% better than it was even 10 years ago. But that transition is going to take time. And we need to, to continue to measure, adjust, reinvest, measure, adjust, readjust to get there. Because there are way too many energy workers if we just said no more oil and gas. Well, our oil, our gas, the pumps are going to go through the roof. And then Canadians go, why is our gas so expensive? And then all these people are going to be out of jobs with nothing, no vine to hold on to. The poverty that will ensue because we don't have the energy, the new jobs for these, for this transition. So it's going to take some time. Yeah, exactly. And when we look at what's happening in Europe and with the UK, with their energy shortages, it affects all aspects of the economy, not just, not just the energy sector. Yeah, and I think Canadians really care about each. I think we care about each other, even though these these provincial fights that happen, these transfer payments that were that Alberta is starting to to question. Uh, I think we need. There's still a little bit too much polarization in Canada, but I but I do believe Canadians, you know, be, because many of our communities travel for construction jobs, et cetera. And they bring those experiences from other provinces back home and they bring their experience and their culture and their food to other places like Fort McMurray, who's got lots of incredible Newfoundlanders. And, you know, as an example, we care. I, I believe Canadians care. If I can ask you to uh, switch your hat again for me, can you tell us a bit about your work with the Energy Futures Lab? Well, this is, this is relatively new and they're part of the natural step. Um, they asked me early spring well, late spring, I guess, early summer. If uh, And again, it's a little bit sensitive and we've been very, very fully transparent. The group came to me a little bit late in the process, but they recognized that they had a big gap and that was the Indigenous voice. So uh, to Karen and Ajwan and the crew, uh, you know, thank you for bringing me on. We're doing our best. Um, and I've got this amazing group uh, of half a dozen Indigenous leaders from Alberta, one from BC, one from Ontario. And, and we're trying to figure out a policy paper that's been largely drafted, but there's tons of room to inject our ideas and the Indigenous voice around the criteria, like, like things, alignment around net zero and our trajectory, a forward-looking ESG approach, and economic viability, building, you know, Alberta's incredible. They've done incredible work. So build on those current assets and, 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 and strengthen the economy um, and in promoting an inclusive economy, which is the Indigenous one, to the building blocks. We've done lots of work. What does carbon uh, look like? Uh, carbon fiber, lithium batteries, hydrogen, geothermal. So we're, we're basically taking these Indigenous voices and we're applying our knowledge systems as well as our need for economy And I've got these incredible leaders around the table that are bringing their experience so that we can make sure when these policy ideas mature with our voice, that we're not going to make the same mistakes that we've been making for 150 years when it comes to the lack of Indigenous inclusion. So that policymakers can see exactly what it means to have Indigenous people at the table and the value and the experience and, quite frankly, the brilliance of, of these people that I get to work with. I'd love to ask you more about that as we start to wrap up. What 
is your vision for the future of Indigenous participation and leadership in energy production and natural resource development? I, I believe that the natural resource sector employs a large amount of Indigenous peoples, if my stat is correct. No, you, no, you, no, you totally got it. And, and, I, and um, what is it? 73.947% of stats are made up. I'm going to make this one up. I'm going to be as close as I can. But, you know, my friend Kelly Lindsay runs uh, an Indigenous human resource, um, uh, Aboriginal human resource development uh, group uh, for years. I think it was his work. He talked about seven or eight Canadians um, out of 100 rely on the natural resource sector. I don't think Canada even knows this. Uh, 16, 17% of our GDP, right? By the way, the oil and gas sector over the next, I don't know, 30 years, it was like $100 trillion that are, or $30 trillion to our economy. It's big. Indigenous people, to your point, Teresa, I think it's around 17 or 18 out of 20 rely on the natural resource sector. So can you imagine if we don't get this just transition right, what that is going to do to our people? We're just getting into the job markets the last 20 years. We've been shut out of the economy because of colonialistic practices and racism for how long? We're just getting a foothold, understanding what it is to break the, the cycles of government dependency and all of a sudden you rip the sectors that, that our people rely on the most from underneath our feet, mm. that'll send us back decades, 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 decades. So my vision for the natural resource sector and Indigenous people is that we have more people looking like, like me, maybe not as funny looking, <laughs> sitting on corporate boards, you know, like my mom said, I got a face for radio. <laughs> so having more of our people in those leadership positions it was great. I was there a dozen Indigenous people that are now in federal politics. I mean, we need more people at that level. And we need um, the equity pool so that, you know, our vision is that our people are actually the ones doing the, ex the sustainable extraction, running the companies, generating the, the, the benefits so that we're not passive participants. You know, for a long time, we couldn't get work. Then we got jobs Then we started businesses and entrepreneurs and we started joint ventures. And now we're primary producers. Um, I want to see more of that. I want to see two or three indigenous companies in the top hundred companies in the world. You know, that's that's the vision I have for our people in the natural resource sector uh, in this country. And with the knowledge that Indigenous youth are also the fastest growing cohort of youth in Canada, how do you see the next generation innovating in the sector? Wow, they are brilliant. They are bright. They are on fire. I have an almost 18-year-old daughter who educates me every time I talk to her. They really do have huge opportunities. There's still significant challenges, of course, in our communities, which we know we don't, we don't have to get into. But when we think about the technology advancements, the opportunities to advance that, um, those youth have so much ahead of them. When I, when I look, you know, I stand on the shoulder of giants like a Phil Fontaine is an example, um, who's a mentor of mine, who's done incredible work. There weren't a lot of Phil Fontaines in the world. Then you get to my group and, you know, I've got, I get to work with the Clint Davises, the Sherry Brands, the Tabitha Bulls, the Kim Bairds, you know, that group is larger. It's a larger base, but we're still very few and we are stretched to the max. And then I look the youth coming up behind me, the 25 to 35-year-olds who are being educated and are holding you know, on to their cultures and traditions and communities and their ability to be able to take that knowledge, combine it with their education, watch out. These youth are, are going to transform Canada and the world. 
JP, my, my last question to you is what tangible practical lessons or practices can we learn from indigenous stewardship of natural resources, the environment, as we move into a lower carbon economy? And I think just, just sit down with our communities and, and have some tea, go fishing, go moose hunting. The stories that emanate from just being around a campfire with, with our community members will enrich your lives. And I'll, and I'll tell you a little story in a second. The practical things that you can do is, you know, show up. If you don't show up, nothing's going to get done. Show up to community events, show up to business events, um, support organizations like the CCAB and NACA and AFAOA and, you know, support those organizations that are doing great work. Procure from Indigenous entrepreneurs because, you know, when you procure from those entrepreneurs, you're building a relationship and you're supporting a family, you're supporting a community and you're supporting an economy. But you just got to show up. I mean, the practical things is just throw your fear-based, your preconceived notions about who we are as people and show up. And, and it's going to get you a long way. There's a book, uh, uh, Triple, Triple Crown. It's been a while since I've read that. Um, uh, Jim Prent, the late Jim Prentice's book. And I was at a, um, at a panel talking about his book and and uh, somebody asked me a, kind of a similar question. And, and what struck me about Jim was that he really, like one of the, the three crowns was the Indigenous relationships. And he took the time to travel and meet with Indigenous people to understand us. And I'll just relate this back to my one of my very first forestry lessons. I was just a young little pup wet behind the ears and we were grading trees, one, twos, and threes. And I've told this story many times. So if anybody's heard this and is listening, and I apologize, but some of you may not have. But the, our, our, our prof said, you know, what's that tree and what do you think it is? A one is all fine lumber, two is lumber and pulp, and three is mostly pulp. And what kind of tree is it? And so we were looking, and I remember, I, vis- I remember it was a yellow birch. And we all started out one, two, one, two. And our tech said, well, you're all wrong. And we're like, well, what do you mean? So not one of you went to go around the other side of the tree to see what it looks like on the other side. There could be a big split down there. It could be a three. So my challenge to your listeners is get up and walk around the Indigenous tree. If you don't understand it, how can you work with us, right? And it's the same thing as just show up because that's what's going to progress this country, relationships. Show up. That is such a, a simple yet effective and powerful statement. JP, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us on Disruptors. Thank you, Teresa. It was a real pleasure. That was JP Gladue board director at Suncor Energy and a principal at Mokote Consultancy. We hope you've enjoyed these extended cuts from some of our most popular interviews from the Climate Conversations, a special multi-part series on disruptors. To hear the complete series, go to rbc.com slash disruptors. Until next time, I'm Teresa Doe. Talk to you soon. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.